Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm your very humbled pastor. I was feeling self-confident and assured, enjoying what I was wearing today, feeling good about myself. And uh, now you can tease me afterwards when we have tea and go to Afros. So um, I've been looking forward to today for quite some time. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is probably my favorite book in the whole Bible, and I think it's going to be yours too quite soon. And we get to start a series today going through that Gospel together and letting God speak to us and shape us together as a community. So we're going to be going through that over the next few months, and we're really trusting that the Holy Spirit would speak to us, would shape us as a community, and would actually empower us to live this stuff out and be this kind of people in the city of Durban together. And one of the reasons uh, we've decided to do this series is because as a church, we've said our vision is to know Jesus and make Jesus known. And that's exactly what Luke does in his biography of the life of Jesus. The first nine chapters, he focuses exactly on who Jesus is. And you'll see that as we go through these questions of who is Jesus being answered. And then as he carries on, we see that the questions of what it looks like to follow Jesus today get answered through Jesus' example and his teachings and his disciples. So we're really pumped about this and we're looking forward to seeing how God will shape us. And because this is a big series for us, we're going to have a bit of a multi-pronged attack to disciple the church together as a team. So firstly is the Sunday side. We're going to be preaching through the Gospel of Luke uh, on Sundays over the next few months. We're going to start up until Easter looking at Jesus' life. Easter Sunday we'll preach on Jesus' death, the cross, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And then we're going to spend a few weeks going through his teachings or parables on the kingdom of God. And then on the 4th of June, which will be the end of the series, which is Pentecost Sunday, we're going to spend some time talking about the Holy Spirit and praying that God would fill us and empower us as His church for what He's called us to do in the city. So really excited about the preaching side of that. Secondly, in our life groups, we've given all of the leaders in this community some really great resources to teach through some different passages and different stories from the Gospel of Luke. So that means if you are not in a life group, you are going to miss out. You're going to miss out on like a big part of the series. So I want to encourage you, if you're not connected in a group, these happen on Tuesday and Wednesday nights. They're a really big place for you to grow in your faith and get to know people in this church. I'd love you to come and chat to me or Brendan afterwards. Go downstairs to our information desk, and we'd love to help you get connected with one of these groups, get to know some people, and get growing. Thirdly is the personal side. And you should have found one of these cool resources on your chair when you sat down. Otherwise, you'll be able to get hold of one at the information desk afterwards. But that's like a basic way of Jesus guide to kind of intro you to what the series is about, to give you a bit of commentary on the Gospel of Luke. It's got some key scriptures there you can memorize. It's got some key themes that Luke is going to be teaching us through in the book. And on the back, you'll see a really great six-week reading plan. Now, I know some of you guys are vociferous readers, so you're going to fly through that in like two or three days. Some of you are going to take a little bit longer than six weeks. Go at your own pace. That's absolutely fine. One of the reasons we put three different tick boxes there is because some of you guys will read through it once, and that's great. Read through the Gospel of Luke with us. Some of you are going to read through it two or three times and want to go through it again and again and pray through it and think through it and write down notes. That is so cool. But I know for some of you guys, this is new. You've never kind of woken up early to read your Bible or pray before, but now you know the whole church is going through the Gospel of Luke together. And I'm sure there's some guys in this room who used to do that. That used to be your habit. You wake up, you make a cup of tea in the morning or coffee, if that's the kind of person you are. Sit down on a chair, open your Bible, read and pray. I want to encourage you guys to get back into the habit of doing that. And that we know tomorrow morning, as we start this off together, the whole church is in Luke 1 together, starting to study Luke's biography of Jesus' life. 
All the research says that probably the two biggest things that are going to shape you spiritually are community, being here on Sundays, being in a life group together, and getting alone with God, reading the Bible for yourself, praying and being with God for yourself. So we really want to encourage you in those three areas. And fourthly, we're going to be doing some great events over these months. Some will be a week long, some will be an evening, where we're going to practice the ways of Jesus together. Some of the things that he's teaching us, we want to actually put them into practice, because there's a reality that it's great to hear a sermon, and we learn that way, but there's something about actually getting your hands dirty with doing something, which shapes us in a profound and real way. So that's our multi-pronged attack to the gospel of Luke. After all of this, I think you should know Luke's gospel pretty well. You might not have your doctorate in the gospel of Luke, but you'll be doing pretty well in terms of knowing it and hopefully knowing and loving Jesus better. Some of you will have known Jesus for years. Some of you are new to him, but I'm excited to see him meet with us and shape us as a community. And I think I know what's going on in the church now as I talk about these things, is that some of you are sitting there and you're purring like kittens. You are so excited for the series and you are ready to roll. You're like, cool, got my reading plan tomorrow morning, going to start. Grant, what are you preaching on today? You are amped to get into the Gospel of Luke and you're my favorite people in the church. Then some of you, you've been around for a while and you're like, Grant, listen, we know Jesus. I've read Luke like a hundred times now. I know the Gospel of Luke well. This sounds like it's going to be a bit of a long and boring thing. We're not sure we're too excited about it. I think I've got a helpful illustration which should help you guys in the second camp. We live in Sweat City, Durban, South Africa, and you can feel it today. It is as humid as it could possibly be. I was up at five this morning and I was sweating like a pig preparing, which is just a beautiful picture. But living in Durban, every single one of us have been to the beach before, and you will know what sand looks like um, as the picture pops up. This is a beach setting. <laughs> that is a beach setting. The other one was a desert setting. Both are sandy, though. That is sand. You know sand. You've been to the beach. You've squished sand in between your toes. You've made sand castles before. You've thrown sand balls or mud balls at your friends, whatever you've done with sand. And you feel like we know sand pretty well. But Shell and I were looking at some pictures yesterday of sand, uh, not multiplied, zoomed in 300 times, magnified. And this is what sand looks like up close and personal. Isn't that incredible? We know sand so well living in Durban. We know what the beach looks like, but we would never expect that kind of beauty and uniqueness and diversity in each granule of sand. And when we zoom in and when we magnify what is going on, all of a sudden we see like a whole new world, dazzling place we never knew. And what I'm trusting is as we get into the Gospel of Luke, is some of you guys know the Gospel, kind of like that first picture, if you can put it back up, Callum. This is how you know the Gospel of Luke. Sandy Beach, we know sand well. But by the end of our series, I'm hoping that we can zoom in and study and magnify Jesus' life and his teachings. And by the end of it, we know it in a way, like seeing that sand in a whole new way. We fall in love with Jesus and we're amazed at his ways um, as we learn them together. So that's what we're pumped about for this series. Maybe you're wondering why we've called this series The Way of Jesus. We've really picked that name because in the New Testament, the first church community in the book of Acts was called The Way. In fact, Luke, who writes the Gospel of Luke, writes about that church community and six times says they are the way. Paul the Apostle uh, illustrates this in Acts 24 verse 14. He says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. 
So if Paul was to fill in his Facebook religious feed or to fill in his religious views on some kind of form, you know what he would say? say? He'd say, I'm a follower of the way of Jesus or I'm a disciple of Jesus. He's probably not going to put Christian down. The term Christian only appears twice in the whole of the New Testament, but the way is all over the place. I know it sounds a bit sectish. Paul even says it there, but it's beautiful to think of us following Jesus and living out his ways together as a community. And this is a new way. This is a countercultural way. It's a different way. And it is shaped by Jesus' kingdom vision of what he is doing in the world and what it looks like to live for him and follow him today. And Shane looked at this the other night. We had a leaders meeting. And he looked and he said to all of us, you know what I think? Is as we go through the series, it's almost like some of our lives say the way of Grant or the way of Shane or the way of Gareth or the way of whoever you are. And it's like Jesus is going to rub that name out and he's going to put the way of Jesus over our lives and the way we live and the way we think and the way we, um, everything is going to be changed by the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So we're really pumped about that. And I think Luke's uh, narrative to us shapes us in a profound way. So if you've got a Bible, can you turn with me to Luke chapter one? We're going to read verse one to four together. Otherwise, it will pop up on the screen behind me. But this is the in the beginning moment of Luke's gospel. And this is his introduction. We're going to spend today kind of getting a bit of an intro and an overview of the book. And I hope it'll excite us to get into Luke for ourselves. So Luke chapter one. It says in verse one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." We see here in this passage that Luke is saying he is not the only biographer of Jesus' life and teachings. In fact, Luke is actually saying he's not even the first. Luke is writing here and he's saying he's already read the different gospels. He's already read the different uh, writings and stories of Jesus' life. And he's studied hard. In the Bible, if you don't know this, there are four different biographies of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different authors who've written the story and teachings of Jesus for us in a way that we can read from different angles. It's kind of like surround sound as we read these four different gospels. Or I don't know if like there's been breaking news going on and you flip between Al Jazeera, BBC, CNN, SABC News, and it's like they've got slightly different footage of the same story and maybe some different facts. And as you watch these different um, news stories breaking, you get a fuller picture of what is going on at the time. That's what's happening with having four different Gospels. And it's amazing just reading as they write to their different audiences with their different intentions, how they highlight and focus on some things that the other gospel writers don't highlight on, and how each author's got something unique about them while they're still telling the same story. And Luke says, writing in this context, that he has written an orderly account of the Jesus story for us. And I think what we can do it's 2,000 years on from Luke's life, is we can think Luke didn't think this was a big deal. You know, he didn't know that billions of people were going to write this book that he wrote. He didn't think it was that important, so he just slapped this whole thing together and then gave it to good old Theophilus. But that's not what Luke is saying here. Luke is saying he took this really seriously. Luke is saying he took a long time to write this letter. He's saying he went and he read the other accounts. He met the eyewitnesses. He went to the places. He did the research so that when he wrote his story of the life of Jesus, those people who read it would have certainty 
that these are the things that happened. Luke was wanting to check every box. He was wanting to dot every I, cross every T. He wanted to get every detail right so that we could have confidence as we read the Gospel of Luke that this is really true. Um, That was his purpose. And I think there's this reality that we sometimes think of that if Luke had written this down and there'd been a whole bunch of things that were false or inaccurate that no one would have noticed. But after Jesus' death, there were a ton of witnesses around who had heard him. They'd heard his teachings. They'd seen him heal the sick. They'd watched him cast out demons. They'd seen his life and ministry going on. And it's not like um, any of these things would be a surprise. If Luke had tried to pull a fast one, someone would have caught him out. Someone would have said, this is nonsense. And the book of Luke would have been tossed away. It would not have lasted 2,000 years. And we would not be studying it and reading it through together today. I think another important thing for us to get is that Luke is not writing as like a Christian salesman or marketer. He's not trying to win us over with like sensational headlines of what I was talking about, you know. Jesus heals the sick. Jesus casts out demons. Jesus raised from the dead. It's not those kind of things you see on uh, news polls sometimes that we're like absolutely wild with, the cover of You Magazine. It's not what Luke is trying to do here. In fact, some of the things he writes would have turned people away from Jesus. Back then, some of the details he includes and the stories he writes offended people, and they chased people away from Jesus as they still do today. So some of the things Luke actually writes in his gospel would have been better to leave out and hide, because then he would have gotten like more people to buy in, you know, and get involved in this whole Jesus thing. But instead of writing as like a marketer or a Christian salesman, Luke is writing as a historian and as a researcher and as a journalist. He has gone, he's done the research, he's written down the facts, he's studied it all, and finally he's presented his final copy of this, that we can have certainty in the story of Jesus. Luke was a details guy. I think we all know someone like that, you know, someone who nitpicks details. Like Shell and I have joked a little bit about married couples. They'll be telling a story, and they'll say, oh, we walked four kilometers this morning. And then the, the wife will touch the husband and say, no, honey, it was actually 3.9 kilometers. And the husband's like, no, honey, I actually timed it on my Fitbit. It was four. And then this little insignificant argument about silly details, that's the kind of guy Luke was. In fact, uh, Michelle and I were talking yesterday, and my sister's father-in-law is a guy like this. His name is Brian Ash, a lovely man. And we went and we spent the night with him and my sister uh, in Howick. It's where they live on this beautiful eco-estate. And we were staying there, and they live basically in a game reserve. So we took a drive around, and we saw all the animals there. But the first time I went there, I made a terrible mistake. I went to the bathroom, and while I was walking to the loo, I looked out the window, and there was a buck. So I didn't really think anything of it. But on my way back, I mentioned to everyone, oh, what a beautiful place to live. You know, just going to the bathroom, I saw a buck through the window. And then that got Brian's juices flowing. You know, he hops up. He's like, what did you see? And I say, I was a buck, hey, Brian. And he goes, but what buck? What was the color? What was the height? What did the horns look like? So now, I mean, I'm not the details guy. I'm not a Luke-type person. So I'm, I'm trying to fill in the details. I'm like, ah, Brian, I think it was brown. Yeah, I think it was a brown buck. And it was about yay high-ish. It was around there. And the horns, yeah, pointy on the ends. They were pointy <laughs> horns. And then Brian asked me the most important question that at the time I did not realize how significant it was. He says, but Grant, were the ears black? I'm like, sure, Brian. 
The ears were black, whatever you say, boss. And he hops up. The energy in the room changes. It's gone from a pin drop moment. Brian wanting to know about these ears. And I just said the wrong thing. I should have said no. But Brian's up with his binoculars. He wants to find this buck. He wants to see it. That's everything that matters to him. Now, in all fairness, I was probably 50-50 on every single detail I gave him. I was not, it could have been a big dog. Like, I could have got it wrong. <laughs> it was a dog in the bush. I thought it was a buck. But Brian is a details guy. And Luke is a details guy. Luke is not just messing around and fudging some of the details like maybe I would if I wrote a gospel. Luke has painstakingly interviewed people and he's been that anal nitpicking guy saying, sorry, you said this, can I just confirm that before I write this down in sacred scripture for all of time? He is making sure the detail is perfect and accurate for us. Luke is a details guy. And that matters for us because our culture is becoming increasingly relativistic. And what I mean by that is truth is not absolute or concrete or sure or objective anymore. Things are a little bit wishy-washy. So you might have noticed that last year the word of the year was post-truth. What a word to kind of, um, I guess, symbolize our time. Post-truth means uh, where facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. That's the kind of time we're living in at the moment. In fact, you might have seen in the news some talk about fake news or alternate facts. And I think that makes this so important for us. The Luke is writing here, he's saying, listen guys, I am 100% sure on this stuff. I have painstakingly gone through all of this to make certain that everything that I've written down in this book is accurate and sure so you can trust in the writings that I've got here. And Luke addresses his letter to a man named Theophilus, who was probably his benefactor, probably the guy who sponsored him to spend all of this time researching for Luke and his sequel, the book of Acts. And Theophilus would have been this well-educated, cultured uh, man about town, uh, to use a phrase I've never used before in my life. And Theophilus was a real man. He was a real man that Luke was writing to. But what I thought was so beautiful is his name in Greek means lover of God. And as Luke writes this letter, yes, he's writing to a specific person in a specific time, but in another sense, he's writing to all people through all time who love God. And he's writing this accurate account of the story of Jesus for us to know about his life. But there's an interesting like, kind of aspect to this too, is that Luke isn't just writing for those of us who are sure about our faith. He's answering questions for Theophilus. He said, I want you to understand. I know you've been taught about Jesus, but I want to give you certainty. I want to answer your questions. If you're skeptical, if you're unsure about some things you've heard, let me make it sure for you. And I thought if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus or you've got some questions or you're skeptical about something, Luke is a good gospel for you today because Luke is going to try and answer the questions that you've got running through your mind so that you can be sure about what you believe. Maybe just a little bit more about Luke, our author. He is uh, quite unique in terms of New Testament authors because he wrote one of these biographies of Jesus' life and he also wrote a sequel, the book of Acts, which was about the history of the early church or as he says in the first verse, about all Jesus continued to do and teach after his resurrection. Jesus was alive among his people, still doing his work, but now just not on his own, through his people, his body, the church. And in terms of word-for-word -word content, Luke writes more of the New Testament than any other author, including Paul. He's a big deal, this Luke guy. So he writes a lot for us. He was a doctor by profession. And we've got one or two doctors in the room today, which means he was a young professional. Like a lot of you in the room today, he was a young professional thinking through his faith and what it looked like to follow Jesus and what it looked like to be his disciple in his day and age. We see how he went full on after following Jesus and serving him. 
I think also interestingly, he was the only Gentile author of the New Testament. And what that means and why I think it's important is he was like us. Luke didn't grow up in a Jewish home. He didn't grow up with Jewish customs or learning the old Hebrew scriptures. Luke would have learned those somewhere along the line, probably after he encountered Jesus and after he became a follower of his. But he didn't know all the Hebrew backgrounds like nearly all of the other disciples did. This was new ground for him, like some of you who are first-generation Christians or the first person in your family to serve and follow God. And Luke also traveled extensively with Paul the Apostle. We're not sure if he kind of put his uh, medical practice on pause or if he kind of practiced while he was on the road, but he seemed to be part of Paul's apostolic team, going to different places and preaching the gospel and setting up churches and discipling people. That was part of what Luke gave his time to. And while he's out on the road with Paul, he's writing down the gospel, writing down these stories so that people may know and may have faith and trust in them. And because of this, It seems like, in a way, Luke's gospel is Paul's gospel. One of the Greek um, historians, a guy named Eusebius, claims that Paul quoted from Luke's gospel saying, according to my gospel. So almost like the gospel of Mark is Peter's gospel. Mark was Peter's secretary. It seems like Luke's gospel belongs to Paul, in a way, which I think is a really, really cool fact. And Luke starts his gospel with these words of assurance. You can trust what I've written down because I have researched this for you. And then he gets into this four-chapter pa- four intro or opening credits to the life of Jesus, which I think is a lot like some of the movies we watch today. And I'm sure you can think of the kind of movie I mean, like almost whatever the, the production house is pops up on the screen and the screen goes black. And you hear something of the click of the projector for one of those old kind of film cameras. You hear that click and then you see the old footage pop up on the screen. And it's this couple who are young and in love and they wave at the screen. You see she's got a tummy, she's pregnant. And then they're in the hospital together and she's giving birth and then they've got the baby in their arms. They're holding this little child. And then what they do in the storytelling technique is they show you some highlights from the life so that you have an idea of what has shaped this person to be who they are. So maybe this kid loves cars, and they're always playing with cars, or they love helping their dad in the garage make things. Or maybe uh, that's kind of telling you they're going to become an engineer one day. Or maybe they're the kind of kid who's bullied and picked on all the time, and you see them locked up in their room, or kind of got a black eye after a fight, or sitting on their own at lunch, whatever it is. You see, some of the story is told so that when we get into the today scene, the modern day scene, where we pick up with where the person is, we've got a whole lot of background and context to what has shaped them to be the kind of person they are today. And that's exactly what Luke does with his first four chapters. It's the opening credits to the life of Jesus. And then we meet Jesus in Luke chapter four, kind of where he is today, starting his ministry, starting to be the Messiah, in a sense. The first part of the montage we see It's really incredible. It's two angelic encounters. These angels appear to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the baptizer. And they kind of say to them, you're going to have a child. These two women are related, and their two children are going to be these huge answers to prophecy. For thousands of years, they have been prophesied about. John, the one who would prepare the way for the Lord, and Jesus, who is God himself, God with us, the Savior of the world, coming into our midst. And at Christmas time, we always preach through the birth of Jesus, and we look at the angels and the animals and the shepherds and the kings who come to celebrate his birth. Then there's this amazing moment a few days later as Jesus is dedicated at the temple, and these two old saints, 
these two old men and women who have followed God as long as they've been alive, really. They come up to Jesus and they see this is no ordinary baby. And they prophesy over him, Anna and Simeon, saying, you are the son of God. You are the savior of the world. You are the long prophesied about one. We skip forward a few years and next in the montage, we see Jesus sitting in the temple, what every 12 or 13 year old boy loves to do. And he's sitting with the rabbis and the teachers and they're teaching amazing theology and things. And Jesus is just firing questions at them. He wants to learn. He wants to know. He wants to understand. And as they ask him a few questions, they are amazed at his wisdom and understanding. And Mary and Joseph are angry at him for some reason. I won't go into that. But you can imagine this moment of Mary walking into the temple and seeing her son among these rabbis and teachers and just amazed at the maturity and wisdom of her boy, probably feeling so proud. Wow, God gave me the opportunity to raise this child. And also, oh, what a young man he is becoming in front of our eyes. And then in Luke chapter 3, we get Jesus' family tree. 77 generations along the story of God. It has been pointing ahead to Jesus, and now he is here, and he is in our midst. So Luke does this amazing thing. He tells the story of Jesus's life, and for us with no background on the Jewish faith or the Israelite history, we get a lot out of that, and that's the kind of man Luke was, but Luke is actually overlaying the story of Jesus over the story of the Israelites, the people of God, and it's beautiful as we scratch under the surface and see what he's doing here. First up, when Jesus is baptized, he is baptized at the Jordan River. Now, I think the way we think is this. John the Baptist was outside and he was preaching and wasn't really working in town because he needed this river where he could baptize people. So he kind of wandered out of town, found the nearest river, and people came and they heard him preach and he baptized them. But that's not what's going on here. In fact, John is very, very far away from the nearest town. He's 20 miles away from Nazareth where Jesus was living at that time. So for Jesus to go there, it meant a trek to get there through the mountains, out of the way to get to this river. And John has picked this symbolic space on the banks of the Jordan River because this is actually where the Israelites crossed over into the promised land. And John has very symbolically chosen this place to preach a message of repentance and a message of renewal and a message about how God is doing something new and is calling people to be his new people. And then he is taking people into the same waters that the people of God crossed thousands of years ago to walk into the promises of God. And he is baptizing them as a symbol of this renewal movement of what God is doing in Israel. John is preparing the way for the Lord. And Jesus arrives to be baptized by John. Huge moment, you can imagine. Crowds gathered around and Jesus, this well-known teacher rabbi, steps out and John takes him into the water and takes him under and raises him up. And it says the heavens open and the Spirit of God descends like a dove and God's voice speaks. It must have been this profound life-changing moment for every witness in the crowd. But again, Luke is overlaying the story of Jesus over the story of the people of God because he's pointing back to two things that happened again and again in the history of Israel. Often God would rend the heavens and he would come down over the temple or the tabernacle and he would appear and speak to his people. And he's doing it again here over Jesus, the new temple, the new way to God. And we see the Spirit of God descend over Jesus like a dove, just like in Genesis 1, when God is creating everything that was made, and the Spirit hovered over everything that was formless, waiting to create. It's like Luke is wanting to say to us that the Spirit of God is hovering over Jesus, wanting to bring new creation to the world all around through this man. Luke is doing something amazing here in these writings. And then in Luke 4, Jesus enters into the desert. 
And this is a significant moment. Jesus hasn't just chosen to do this. The Holy Spirit has led him into the desert to a place of silence and solitude and prayer and fasting where he can prepare himself for ministry. Actually, next week we're going to start in the middle of Luke chapter 4 when Jesus' ministry begins. And it is a powerful and explosive moment. But Jesus goes to be prepared, and he is not weak in the desert. We sometimes think because Jesus is fasting, he is weak, but actually he is very, very strong. And Satan comes to him to tempt him. And I've got to ask you, do you see what Luke is doing here? Because Luke, again, is mirroring what God did in the desert with the Israelites. When the Israelites went into the desert, now Jesus is going into the desert. He goes in for 40 days, representative of their 40 years. But where they failed to follow God in the desert, Jesus is being victorious in the desert. Where they failed their battle with the devil, Jesus has won his, showing that he is the victorious and perfect substitute for us in every single way. Jesus is showing all the newness of what God is doing. A new Israel, Jesus is painted as a new Moses, leading a new exodus to bring about a new creation with a new temple into a new promised land because it is a new way all inside of him. Luke's writings are deep. It's really fun to get into all of this stuff together. And Luke is trying to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. He is the fulfillment of history. He is the fulfillment of the promises of God. He is the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy, all in this man, Jesus. And over the next few months, we're going to explore the story of what God does through his lives, his life. But Luke writes and says in Luke 1 verse 1 something that is so important. He says that he has compiled a narrative, a true story of the things that have been accomplished or the things that Jesus did. And it's so important for us to get that this is a story because I don't think that this is the kind of book that we would have written if we were put in Luke's shoes. You know, we think probably that Luke would put together all of the transcripts of Jesus' teaching, kind of go person to person and put together Jesus' top 10 sermons and write those down in a book and give them to us so we could read them and memorize them and then obey them. Or we would do something like kind of what we've got today online, you know, some life hacks and some blogs on important theological argument, uh, arguments and then like a few of his top sermons, something like that. We get some kind of um, grouping of all of these messages put together for us to read. But Luke doesn't do that. That's not what he chooses to do, because Luke knows that it's not about the teachings of Jesus, it's about the life of Jesus. We aren't saved by what Jesus says, we are saved by what Jesus has done. So he wants to paint a picture of the life Jesus lived in our place for us, which is really different to any other religion or ideology that has ever gone before. Because you never find in a different religion or ideology that the founder of the movement, his birth, his story is important. It's what they said. You're made righteous, you are saved, you're forgiven, you're connected to God through the teachings which we need to live and obey and learn. But Jesus has come to do a new thing. It's not about our obedience, it's not about our understanding, it's not about our insights, it's not about our anything, it's about who He is and what He has done in our place for us. It's about the story that He has lived. And one of the things that we get from this is actually that good preaching, in a sense, shouldn't leave us feeling inspired or excited or content or elevated. And I say that because Jesus' teachings are quite devastating to us. 
If we just had Jesus' teachings, we would probably be very discouraged. Because when Jesus teaches, like I said a few weeks ago, he says, love your enemies and forgive them and pray for them. That's not an inspiring, kind of uplifting thing. That's devastating. You know, if that was all I said to you today, you'd leave here like, oh man, that is hard. What about be generous? What about have a joyful life of generosity, giving your money to other people? What is up with that? That doesn't leave you feeling inspired. That leaves you feeling like, that's crazy. Or when Jesus says we shouldn't seek revenge, but we should forgive others. We should turn the other cheek. All of those teachings are radical. I'm pretty sure if I preached the opposite today, I could get you pumped. I could get everyone excited for their afternoon. If I said, who is one of your enemies? Raise your hand if there's someone who you want to seek vengeance on. I said, guys, what we're going to do after church, we're scrapping afros today. We're going to spa. We're getting some eggs. We're going to load up our paintball guns. We're going house to house. And we're uh, egging people's gardens, paintball gunning people's garages. We're going to slash people's tires. We're going to get them back for the things they've done. You guys would be pumped. We would have mayhem across the city of Durban today. You would be inspired. But in a sense, Jesus' teachings are different because they call us to lay down that life and lay down some of those choices. And it's actually like a wrestle and a humbling inside because we go, God, you need to help me to be that kind of person. I'm not naturally that kind of person. Holy Spirit, please will you change me? Will you empower me? Will you transform me to be the kind of person that doesn't go and just paintball gun their garage? Help me to be the kind of person that forgives them in my heart and loves them and prays for them well. That's what Jesus is wanting to do. So in a sense, Jesus' teachings devastate us, and they show us our need for God and our dependence on God. But in another sense, Jesus' teachings do inspire us. Because when we hear as Jesus teaches about his way, you know what we think to ourselves? Those are the kind of people I want to know. When we talk about loving your neighbors and giving generously and forgiving those who you should seek vengeance on, we go, oh, I wish those were the neighbors I had in my home. You know, if our, if our building was filled with people like that, it would be the perfect place. What about the people at work or the people in my family? If they lived this stuff out, that's where I would want to be all the time. And as we hear that, we do get inspired because we realize this is the kind of people we are called to be to. And we feel this excitement. God, you have called me to a new vision of life. You have called me to a new vision of what it looks like to follow you. It is a different picture to the way of Durban around us. It is the way of Jesus. It is radical and different, but it is beautiful and inspiring. And in a sense, we should never leave meeting with God feeling like, you know what, I've crushed the Christian game. I'm doing so well at this. I'm so strong. We should always leave feeling, Lord, I need you more. I'm more dependent on you. I want you more. Would you give me more of yourself? Would you change me and help me to be the kind of person Jesus has called me to be? Because we need Jesus. We don't just need his teachings, we need him. We need him to live the life all of us are going to fail to live again and again and again. And we need him to die on the cross in our place for our sins. That we can be made right with God. That we can feel forgiven. That we can be washed clean. That actually where we fail, we don't need to feel guilt. But we can feel a new identity in him as his beloved children, as sons and daughters. As Graham and the band were singing about earlier. So I want to say, yes, Jesus is an amazing teacher. And over the next few months, it's going to be really exciting to go through his teachings together. But more than that, Jesus is an incredible savior who washes us clean of shame and sin and guilt. And he gives us his life and righteousness. And he takes our sin upon himself. And he makes us new. Can I ask us to stand together?
I want to pray for us as a church. We're going to sing together and then Brenz is going to close. But I just thought, can we pray? If you're comfortable closing your eyes, I would really love to ask you to do that. If I can ask you to turn your eyes to Jesus and focus on Him, the one we've been speaking about today. I want to pray for us as a church at the beginning of the series and in terms of some of the things that we've said. And maybe make space for anyone in this room who says, today I want to begin the journey of following Jesus to respond. So Lord, I pray as we start this series that you would reveal yourself to us. Some of us know you like that sandy beach, but we need to know you like those zoomed in grains of sand. And I pray you would reveal yourself to us today. Show us who you are. Reveal your salvation. Reveal your teaching. Reveal your beauty. Open our eyes to see you, Lord. If we've become familiar with you, but we don't know you, please, Holy Spirit, would you come and meet with us? We want to know you. We don't just want to know about you. And we want to be a church that lives out your way. So I pray, Holy Spirit, empower us for the new way. Put to death in us everything that is not of you. Change us and form us and shape us into your people. We ask you for that. I just thought if there's anyone here today who's saying they want to begin a journey of following Jesus, they want to say, Jesus, I see you are the only way. I no longer want to live my way or the way of Durban. I want to live your way. If you today are saying, I want to begin that journey, I'd love you to raise your hands to God as a sign of surrender and yieldedness. Almost saying, God, I need your help. I need to depend on you and rely on you. I can't do this on my own anymore. Would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you wash me clean? I want to walk your way. Would you just pray and say, Jesus, wash me clean. Forgive me. Save me. Thank you for living the life I could never live and dying the death I deserve to die. I want to follow you as my Lord and my teacher and my Savior and my King. We welcome you in this place. Pray you would do that, Jesus. Amen.